My name is Sanjeev Gupta and this is Socialism in the Time of Corona. In this podcast, I'm talking with people with deep experience in socialist and left politics, especially in the US. Our overarching question is, during this pandemic, how might we not only defend whatever gains we've made to this point, but actually advance them? We kick off the fall edition of this podcast with a conversation with Leo Panich, who likely requires little introduction. I asked Panich about two issues which he has studied and written about for decades. First, whether the pandemic has fundamentally altered the geopolitical balance between the US and other great powers, especially China. And second, how socialists in the US should approach the November elections. It's only when I listened again to the conversation that I realized that, for Panitch, the two issues are intimately connected. Leo Panitch is Professor Emeritus of Politics at York University in Toronto. He is co-editor of The Socialist Register and author of several books, most recently, Searching for Socialism, The Project of the Labour New Left from Ben to Corbyn, co-authored with Colin Lees and published by Verso. I started by asking Panitch whether the U.S.'s obvious failures in dealing with the pandemic had weakened its geopolitical status as superpower. No, I I don't think so. I mean, obviously, the tensions uh, that existed under the Trump administration, especially, but there were tensions before, uh, even under the Obama administration, uh, have you know they already increased before the pandemic under the Trump administration. Trump has, uh, as he does with everything else, opportunistically tried to call this the Chinese virus, etc. Uh, but I, I don't know that the pandemic itself has altered uh, the relationship. Um, Of course, it's a continuation of uh, the competence of American state institutions and the legitimacy of the American empire uh, being open to question by virtue of the pandemic. But again, I think that was all going on before. Hmm. What I would say as a way to think about this, which I think is crucial, is that that most of the left, like most conventional reportage on the geopolitical situation, thinks in terms of a rising China um, or a rising group of similar countries, um, you know, India and Brazil and South Africa uh, and so on. posing a challenge from the outside to American dominance of the global economy. Mm. Uh, Whereas it's been my view, and it was the central argument of Sam Gindens in my book in the making of global capitalism, the political economy of American empire, that the real contradictions in the global economy are not between states so much as they are within states. Mm. And what is indeed screwing up, if you like, American leadership is not the challenge from China or the BRICS. Um, What is screwing it up is internal contradictions within American society. Um, and, And that's true of almost every state in the world. I mean, the reason that China cannot displace the United States as the coordinator of global capitalism, uh, why it needs capital controls, uh, it has to do with internal class relations inside China. Um, uh, The Chinese Communist Party would lose control were it not able to exercise those external constraints Mm. uh, uh, on the renminbi, which means it can't possibly replace the dollar. And if it can't replace the dollar, China cannot become uh, the center of global capitalism. 
Um, and this is also true in Europe. The great contradictions in terms of people used to predict that Europe would challenge and the euro would challenge the American uh, predominance in the global economy. Hardly anyone says that anymore, but that was extremely common a view both back in the 1970s and again when the euro uh, was launched at the end of the Economic and Monetary Union. That's right. Uh, this millennium. Uh, but it's been contradictions within Europe, uh, uh, which one saw very clearly with the euro crisis um, uh, in, in 2011, 2012. And those contradictions between states in Europe reflect contradictions, class struggles, class conflicts, class tensions within each of the major European states. What we're seeing with the United States uh, is uh, the internal contradictions have uh, produced a dysfunctional uh, regime in terms of the role that the American state has played really since the Second World War uh, and, and uh, doubled all the war after 1980. Uh, in facilitating and making and managing and coordinating uh, other states in managing the global economy. It only does them in conjunction with other states. It does that management in conjunction with other states. Um, and they all have taken a responsibility for uh, when they introduce economic policies, thinking about that, not, in, not just in terms of their implications for their domestic economy and society, but their implications for uh, stabilizing a increasingly irrational and uh, crisis-ridden global capitalism. Mm. Uh, and, and what is screwing up the United States' capacity to do that uh, are the, yes, the effects of NAFTA and a series of other uh, trade agreements. Uh, bilateral and multilateral, have had on American workers. Uh, the effects that removing regulations uh, uh, over uh, monopolies has had in terms of devastating uh, small businesses and many communities. Um, what the movements of capital uh, so freely into New York and out of New York uh, has done in that respect in terms of regional and class inequalities. So that is now being visited upon the United States in terms of uh, a rogue president um, who is willing, willing to, flan, to fan the flames hmm. uh, uh, of this kind of discontent with global capitalism. It's quite understanding it should be discontent. But since the Democratic regimes and the Republican leaders before Trump were complicit in the making of global capitalism, uh, they don't, haven't had a lot of legitimacy in terms of promises to protect people from it. Uh, so it's an internal crisis. It does have the effect of reducing legitimacy of the American administration in the eyes of other states. Uh, it does have the effect of making, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Various state institutions, the U.S. Treasury, the State Department, let alone uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, etc., much less capable uh, in the roles that they have previously play played. Mm. The one institution, ironically, that has escaped this is the one that the left used to be most critical of because it was an independent central bank that is independent of the influence of government. The Federal Reserve has continued to play the kind of leadership role at the global level, including during the pandemic, uh, ironically, yeah. because it has that independence from the current administration. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, even even from the left and from a socialist point of view, um, uh, you know, it's difficult to imagine what would have happened if the Fed had not been able to do what it did, you know, technocratic and limited as it is. Um, but it's difficult to imagine that things would have gone better if the Fed had also joined the ranks of ineffective uh, institutions. Absolutely. Uh, the banking system would have collapsed. 
uh, on top of everything else that has now, of course. In preventing that, you see the bankers uh, and uh, people who own bank stocks uh, stuffing their uh, pockets full of money. Uh, that's the way in which yeah. capitalism gets saved. But the Fed has played a very, very active role. And it has, as it did in the 2007-2008 financial crisis, uh, provided uh, the swaps, the, the dollars, to other states that have uh, uh, saved their banking system. Um, moreover, during the crisis, uh, China's degree of integration with U.S. finance was indicated. This did come under pressure from the Trump administration years previously. Uh, they have allowed a Chinese financial institution to be uh, uh, over 50% owned by foreigners. Mm. Um, and on April 1st, quite the beginning of the <laughs> pandemic's uh, worst effects in New York, uh, J.P. Morgan uh, bought uh, majority ownership of a leading Chinese brokerage. Um, uh, it costed a billion dollars. Um, so, mm. And China, you know, right through the Trump administration and indeed before it, um, and certainly through during the pandemic, has been calling for the United States to play a responsible role in leading the management of the global economy. Uh, that's not to say it's not engaged in trade competition with the United States. Uh, of course it is. Um, but, but in terms of any ambition to take on that role, uh, not at all. China's consistent line has been that uh, the United States uh, is not playing the responsible role it needs to to stabilize global capitalism. Mm. Uh, so, you know, when, when people are looking at this uh, really... Uh, the place to begin, and in any case, any class analysis of any, any serious kind should start there. And you need to look at the internal social relations inside these states, and especially inside the United States. So, you know, one could imagine that the internal crisis in the U.S. had gotten so serious that it, in fact, did displace uh, the United States in some basic way. And if I understand you correctly, you're saying that there is a serious internal crisis. It hasn't yet led and perhaps will not lead to a fundamental displacement for a bunch of reasons, including that no one else is really yet at the stage that they can can step in. Is that is that a correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's largely correct. That's why the rest of the world, as much as you Americans, uh, are watching with bated breath the outcome of the November election mm. uh, and watching with bated breath whether whatever that outcome that will have the effect of uh, getting Trump out of the White House. Um, the rest of the world, in that sense, uh, remains very much... Uh, within the framework of the American informal empire. Uh, everybody sees this election as in terms of its global implication. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I'm not so much sure it's either a matter of, you know, just waiting for there to be another power to displace it. Uh, if there are fundamental contradictions in the American state, there are then fundamental contradictions uh, in the politics of global capitalism. Mm. Um, and and uh, in that sense, when you get an American crisis, you get a global crisis, much more than is the case with every, any other state on the face of the earth. Mm. Mm. Uh, and one more thing that has to be said in this respect is that the degree of integration uh, of uh, international capital remains enormous, uh, and it is primarily, but by no means only, uh, American corporations and American investment banks uh, that are at the center of this integration, or at least when there are other corporations, they are either suppliers uh, or in close cooperating close cooperation with American transnational capital. Moreover, the world's property classes 
still look to the American state to protect their property in the end. Mm. Uh, you know, if there's going to be a revolution anywhere, uh, those states still look to the American state. Um, the military conflict with China is regional, but China can't hold a candle to the United States in terms of global military power. It virtually has no nuclear capacity. Uh, all of the conflicts have to do with uh, American naval encirclement uh, of, of, of China uh, with American support and bases in uh, Japan and South Korea, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, you know, we are talking about something about to displace the United States. We are talking about an American crisis politically. Uh, which has global effects economically and politically. So what would you say to people who, you know, and, and of course you don't mean it in, in this sense, but some of this concern would resonate with the more traditional liberal kind of uh, concern with, um, uh, you know, the Trump administration's weakening the U.S. involvement overall and, uh, you know, uh, kind of compromising the longstanding military alliances and so on. And normally one would think that if you're a, you know, good lefty internationalist, um, uh, that you would see that as a, perhaps as a good thing. And you're saying both that it's not necessarily a good thing and you're also not really sort of making the same kind of your critique is or or your characterization is not coming from the same place as the traditional liberal concern with the decline of American power. So could you kind of spell that out a little more for well, us? The liberal, the liberal concern, uh, of course, thinks it reflects the fact that they think an American-led global capitalism is the best of all possible worlds. Uh, and they think so long as uh, liberal elites uh, play that role in the world, uh, you have a hunky-dory world. Mm. Um, you know, uh, at Davos, they will talk about the need to reduce inequality and to have tax, tax credits in order to deal with the climate crisis, etc. And that's what you'll return to with, with a Biden administration uh, at best, although he'll have to... Uh, probably also ramp up the conflict with China and Russia, as it indeed was already being done uh, under uh, Mrs. Clinton, the Secretary of State, with Biden's support. Um, but, but it isn't the best of all possible worlds. Uh, this is a deeply irrational and crisis-ridden world. Uh, uh, insofar as the United States plays a leadership role, it serves to band-aid those crises. The Treasury has defined itself since the 1970s as the firefighter in chief uh, and explicitly said we can no longer prevent crises given the marketization of the global economy, given the dynamism of the global economy, given the volatility of new financial instruments. Our role is to put out fires when they happen to contain crises when they happen. Uh, from someone who has a critical Marxist perspective uh, of, of capitalism in the 21st century, what we need is to finally transcend capitalism. Uh, and a Canadian, above all, as I am, uh, must can't but be aware that socialists in this country can only go so far. Mm so long as the left remains on its knees in the United States. Uh, you know, of course, uh, any transition to socialism uh, will take place through struggles at the level of the nation state, but the nation states are very asymmetric. Uh, and insofar as there aren't shifts in that direction in the American empire, what we do will be contained and limited. Not, not unimportant, maybe not uninspiring to you in the United States. Uh, I have to say, it's been the United States left, uh, especially in, from Occupy through to Sanders, uh, who have proved inspiring to your great credit 
to people in Canada and elsewhere. Mm. And some of the hope lies there, but that also reflects the fact that it is internal contradictions to the United States that really matter. A lot of the left, uh, after 1945, moved from uh, an explanation of the world economy in terms of inter-imperial rivalry, which was rooted in the run-up to World War I, um, amongst the advanced uh, countries, the industrialized capitalist countries at the mm -hmm. time, moved after 1945 to a theory of imperialism, um, which saw uh, the third world, unquote, the global south as we call it now, being the uh, exploited uh, in an imperialist world system and being the opposition in an international sense uh, to uh, American imperialism. One can no longer look at it that way. You know, at a time of decolonization, when India, for instance, was just emerging finally from the British Empire, yeah. uh, one could have illusions about this. Uh, as Africa was being decolonized, you could have some illusions about this. Before the military dictatorships in Latin America in the 60s, you could have illusions about this. But what is clear is that neither collectively nor individually does the third world represent a coherent socialist anti-imperialist force? Far from it. Um, the ruling classes in those countries uh, are either integrated uh, into global capitalism in an extremely asymmetric way, uh, or they are simply dysfunctional dictatorships in their own countries. Um, so we need to be looking at this, it seems to me, and it you know, not in terms of these old categories, the old inter-imperial rivalry categories, uh, which began the 20th century, um, uh, or the post-1945 definition of imperialism between the uh, underdeveloped capitalist states uh, and the developed capitalist states led by the American state. Uh, now, of course, that China... And, and the Soviet Union, the Communist China and the former Soviet Union have become capitalist states and integrated into the global system. Uh, the old Cold War view of uh, rivalry doesn't hold either. Yeah. You know, we are really looking everywhere at internal class contradictions, which is where Marx and Engels wanted us to begin in the 19th century anyway. You know, that's where, you know, sure, we need to look at ways in which working classes, more broad class alliances can indeed uh, connect with one another, inspire one another transnationally. But the center of the class conflict remains at the level of the nation state. Well, that, um, you know, and as you've, as you've repeatedly said, uh, it is in particular the class contradictions in the the US that um, that affect the rest of the world more dramatically or deeply than the other way around um, and so I guess that's a good lead up to my next big question which is given all of that um, what is what is the stance for socialists towards this coming election? Um, you know, you and I spoke the last time right after the Democratic Convention, and now it's, you know, we have both conventions behind us. And so in some ways, the the dismal nature of the choice, you know, has been fully spelled out. Um, and uh, yeah, so should this confirm for us the, you know, a pox on both houses kind of attitude that that so many of us have? No, I don't think so. I, I think we're facing uh, a, a popular front moment, uh, if we ever did, that takes us back to the rise of fascism in the early 30s. That's not to say that what is happening in the United States is equivalent to European fascism at that time. But, you know, socialists above all need space. The left needs political space 
to organize, to articulate alternatives, uh, to provide a different discursive narrative, uh, to help people do their own uh, assessments and understandings of how this capitalist system operates nationally and globally. And the great danger at the moment is that uh, the Trump administration will close political space. Uh, we need time, we need space. Uh, uh, my greatest fear ever since Trump was elected was precisely that there would be a punch up between a Black Lives Matter demonstration at a local police force mm. with perhaps a police station being burned down or something. And that Trump would immediately use this since his base is in local police forces and bike gangs, uh, he would use this as an excuse to declare martial law uh, and, and close political space. Well, it's not taking quite that form, but something similar to it. Um, so it's extremely important uh, that uh, this, this uh, administration be taken out of uh, office United States. Uh, one should have no illusions about the limits of the Biden administration that it would be, uh, but it's extremely important. And it won't be easy. Even if Biden were to win, it's by no means clear uh, that that Trump uh, will be prepared to leave, as we know, for yeah. all the reasons he puts forward. And it'll be very important, therefore, uh, for there to be, on the one hand, as there will be, massive demonstrations uh, and mobilizations, um, which will make the ones that have been going on up to now probably a Tea Party, uh, if Trump loses the election, but uh, for all kinds of, engages in all kinds of shenanigans not to leave. Um, but it's also very important that the left be very disciplined, uh, disciplined in the election, so it sees the short-term necessity of voting for Biden, um, but discipline after, so that uh, there aren't, uh, you know, undisciplined burnings of barbershops and or even courthouses, um, say by the Black Bloc. Um, mm. This this provides, I think, a hostage to fortune for the far right. Um, now, there'll be a genre of provocateurs who will be engaged in this in any case. It's going to be extremely dicey. Yeah. But, but it's very, very important that we not get into, if people know uh, what happened in Germany in 1932-33, a situation where the left is divided, where even the left is divided from the soggy liberal center or social democratic center. Uh, on this, there must be unity, uh, above all, because we need time and because we have developed, you have developed in the United States since Occupy, a turn, uh, a very impressive turn of politics using the same crude class map as Occupy 99 to 1, a turn not only uh, in, in terms of sustaining demonstrations, but it turned to actually trying to get into the state to change it. That's what the Sanders moment has represented. Yeah. Uh, whether at the local level, the congressional level, or uh, at the national level, you know, we didn't have to have illusions that Bernie was going to get elected, um, uh, that the Democrats would ever allow him to be their candidate, to see the very important effects of this. And an infrastructure has been created now. Uh, which you see with the DSA and its 60,000 members, an average age of around 30 rather than it used to be over 65. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and they, we need time to build on that. We need time above all to uh, really revolutionize the American labor movement. Uh, all of this organizing activity should its next knock-on effect should be to get into the unions uh, and, and make them agencies of political education, mobilization, and effective union organizations again in collective bargaining. Uh, that will do more to shift the balance of class forces uh, 
uh, at a material level than anything else. And we need time in order to continue uh, through the internet, through social media, and through other vehicles, including your podcast, uh, the tremendous gains that the left has achieved in getting a foothold in the mass media in recent years. You haven't seen anything like it probably since the mass socialist press of the 1920s and 30s. Mm. Um, so, but we need time. And if we, you know, if people don't see the importance of getting uh, these authoritarian scoundrels out of there, uh, we will be losing the space to be able to do this. So, you know, I happen to be in complete agreement with you on this. And, uh, you know, so I don't see this as a lesser of two evils kind of thing. I, I see it exactly as you described, that it's, um, if not quite all or nothing, it is, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's it's necessity. Um, and perhaps no more than that, but but for the moment that, that that's, you know, that's all, that's sufficient. Um, uh, I do think, you know, you mentioned the average age of DSA members and there is, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, I, I haven't done a formal study of this, but I, I do wonder if there's a little bit of, you know, we have these amazing younger uh, activists who've come of age at a time, um, you know, during which they or their peers have been repeatedly disappointed by, uh, you know, various sort of promises um, uh, and have come to an understanding, you know, of a, the need for a systemic change um, uh, and, you know, correctly sort of seeing the Democratic Party as kind of, uh, you know, not at the very least not helpful in that regard. And in some ways, it's almost perhaps... Um, it seems to be kind of difficult, I think, for people to now make the turn towards saying that, yes, all of that still remains true. But, so how, I mean, are there ways we can, and by we, I, I don't really know who I mean we, but, but are there ways to address that sort of, um, you know, that sort of heartfelt sentiment among people who really have seen the worst of of the Democratic Party. And and in fact, that is all they've seen, just, you know, in part because of, of their age. Um so how would we how would we address that? Yeah, it, it's uh people need to be thinking uh strategically, both in the short term and long term. And and uh you know, even if Bernie had somehow managed to get elected, he would have, you know, been sitting there in the White House with an unreconstructed American state. Uh, and, and the left has by no means the capacity or even the strategic orientation at the moment for figuring out how to change that. Mm. Um, this was the problem not only in the United States, but with the Corbinites, momentum, and with Syriza and Greece. Um, so elections are important. They allow alternatives to be articulated. They do shift the balance of political forces. But we weren't going to get to socialism by electing uh, Corbin and Sanders. Uh, Corbin into number 10 Downing Street and Sanders into the White House. Yeah. Uh, uh, any more than we got to socialism in Greece by electing Syriza. Um, uh, that was, you know, those were very positive steps, uh, but much, much more needs to be done to build the organizational strength and capacity of the forces behind figures like that. Uh, if you're going to be able to see through the kinds of changes that are needed. Um, and, and, you know, to speak bluntly, uh, you know, that involves, it involved for Syriza, certainly, not only a shift in the balance of forces inside Greece, for Syriza to have been able to do anything, it would have needed a Northern European labor movement, mm. much stronger and much more committed to supporting Syriza 
in the in what it was arguing for in the European Union than it was. Uh, this is less the case in the United States because of the Americans' uh, very large role in the world. Um, but you know, look, it, the odds of turning the Democratic Party into a socialist party are, you know, they track zero. <laughs> uh, uh, there, there would have to be a split uh, at some point from the Democratic. Uh, a, a realignment of organized political party forces in the United States. That's even true of the Labour Party in Britain, which has much more of a clear class orientation, although it's a class collaborationist one, uh, than does the Democratic Party. Um, uh, so obviously that's true, but you know that's just the first of the apparatuses that there's going to have to be a rupture with in order to get socialism on the agenda in the United States. And those apparatuses stretch from all the way from the Treasury and the Federal Reserve to uh, the health uh, ministry, to the labor ministry, to the education ministries. Mm. Um, this is you know, a very long-term and difficult agenda that we've got going here. So people you know, need to be able to walk, to, to, to walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, they need to see the importance of electoral politics in the balance of political forces. Uh, but they need to be looking beyond that. So voting for Biden doesn't require having any illusions that the Democratic Party is not led by people uh, who are not socialists, who indeed are anti-socialists, uh, who believe with every fiber in their body that socialism is a bad thing. Yeah. Um, uh, that's not to say that it's impossible for them to introduce various reforms, even all the way to uh, single-payer health care. Uh, that depends on the balance of forces in the party. And Bernie is quite right. He made the only substantive speech at the Democratic Party convention, the only one, yeah. where you know he said, yes, vote Biden, but his, most of his speech was addressing the danger of an authoritarian state in the United States, number one. And number two, then listing the things that Biden had committed himself to and saying, look, that's pretty good relative to what Obama accomplished. Um, and, and it is. That's not to say that it's anything like what motivated people to get behind Sanders and the DSA, et cetera. Uh, but it does reflect uh, the effect they've had um, we'll have to see, you know, as Biden continues to appeal to Republicans to uh, join his bandwagon, um, you know, whether he'll even see through those. But Bernie was quite right to try to hold his feet to the fire on national television on that. And people can should be doing that through the campaign. In fact, I think it will help a lot if they do. Uh, it will help speaking to working class people. Uh, Biden only speaks of the middle class, even though he presents himself as the average Joe worker. It was astonishing to see at the Democratic convention that he wouldn't use the word working class. Trump will use it all the time. Yeah. Uh, and and this is a problem, of course. But uh, and people need to be aware of that, be critical of it, etc. Uh, but for heaven's sake, it's most important. The negative vote is what costs what matters in this election in order to continue the struggle uh, to, to get beyond what Biden can possibly provide. Yeah, I, you know, I'm actually struck by Sanders' own uh, clarity on this, uh, which uh, he had even while he was uh, running, uh, you know, and, and he repeatedly emphasized the importance of uh, Trump as a threat to just, I mean, he didn't use the term bourgeois democracy, but just to the basic functioning of the system, which is not something to take lightly. Um, and and he continues to do that, you know, uh, to point to the dangers of the most basic uh, protections and uh, sort of legal, uh, you know, uh, kind of, uh, yeah, protections. Uh and independence of, you know, institutions uh, just being stripped away. Uh, and and he's been consistent in pointing to that in a way, I think, that not, 
Uh, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to characterize something as um, as diverse as the American uh, sort of left uh, or socialist left, but but I don't know that we fully sort of appreciated that the the importance of even the things that we ultimately you know think don't really do the job. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's hard for me to see uh, from the outside. Uh, how much of that is actually going on, uh, you know, how strong a current it is on the American left not to vote for Biden. I mean, I I can't see in any substantive sense that it can electorally amount to much other than abstentions. There won't be a major moment there. Um, It would be a shame if if indeed the abstentions are so great as to have an effect, but it seems to me that the mobilized uh, forces to get out the black vote and Latino vote will not be much affected by uh, these kinds of uh, musings on the left. If there's an insurrectionary illusion going on among small Trotskyist grouplets or amongst black bloc activists, that is that one wants to create as much disruption as possible because then it'll look like 1917 in Russia. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's what it, you know is motivating people. Uh, in which case, it's really tragic because uh, you know Gramsci was so right about that, and it's been confirmed again. If, you know that this state is not going to collapse like a house of cards. Uh, as the uh, Russian state did in the middle of the Tsarist state did in the middle of World War One, there are people who walked around with that kind of model in their heads uh, right through the 20th century, but they really are so marginal now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that it, it's hard to believe that that's where it's coming from. Yeah, and I I actually don't think that that is. I mean, it exists, but uh, but I'm thinking more about. Um, the you know of course there are people who individually may not vote and so on or or vote for you know a third party candidate but uh, but I'm actually thinking of the in some ways the reverse of of um, say uh, you know my organization DSA whether uh, you know there's a way for for socialists to sort of have a robust stance in favor of, you know, blocking sort of this authoritarianism, you know, without any illusions um, and without necessarily doing like a, you know, sort of vote for Biden kind of thing, but making it clear that this is where we are coming from. Um, I think you're right that whether we do it or not will probably not affect the outcome, uh, you know, unless a lot of people simply don't vote for Biden. Um, but but I, but I wonder if that compromises our politics following the election, you know, that... that that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's a very good question, yes. Um, look, it, it, where there are uh, progressive candidates, especially those associated with the DSA, uh, people have every reason to be mobilizing for this election uh, in socialist terms behind those candidates. Obviously, I'm thinking at the state level or at the congressional level, the AOC types, etc. Um, and and in, in mobilizing to get out the vote for those people, it's not hard then to get people to tick off the box for Biden. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I quite understand that people want to be supporting people with uh, socialist platforms as far as they can, um, and in certain places they'll be able to. Um, uh, I, I think one can get fully involved in trying to get out the vote, uh, and yet do so in a way that says, uh we want to be able to get out the vote um, by saying to people, you need to vote for Biden because we think we'll be able to push him to the left. 
Um, and that, you know, that's what people should be trying to do. Uh, during the campaign on the on the program, to try to get him to articulate a more explicit class orientation uh, in policy terms, etc. But certainly, uh, once he were to get in, whether he wins or not, I'm not still not sure that we won't see uh, some horrific attempts to keep Trump in office. Yeah, um, you know. Uh, all along when he's to keep mobilized. Uh, you know, what happened with move on uh, when, when uh, Obama got elected was it just dispersed. It just was an electoral force. Yeah. There's absolutely no reason for uh, the people who come, by, come behind Sanders to see themselves that way. Sanders defined himself as the organizer in chief. People need to see themselves insofar as they're involved in politics as socialist organizers and socialist educators. That's what they mainly need to see themselves as. Part of that involves, of course, electing socialist leaders at all kinds of levels, from dog catcher to president. <laughs> but, but, but the main thing we are, are, are socialist organizers. Uh, and, and that involves elections, of course, but it involves changing the unions. It involves uh, organizing at the level of racial inequalities, as is being done, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't see why this is so hard for people to, to grasp. <laughs> um, I would be very happy to arrange, uh, you know, personal conversations with you and uh, some of uh, some of the people I have in mind. Um, uh, <laughs> um, so uh, if I can impose on you for just a while longer, since you've brought up unions a couple of times, um, uh, you uh, in in the catalyst piece that uh, you you just wrote, uh, which was based on a keynote address, um, uh, to to nurses uh, to a nurses organization, um, I was struck by you, your use of the term uh, class formation um, and the role of uh, you know uh, sort of socialists and and unions in class formation rather than class organization. Um, so can you say a little bit about what you mean by you know class? formation uh it suggests that the class doesn't already exist yeah i, I should say sanju uh, that was actually a keynote address uh for a labor protest conference in argentina oh okay uh, a, a year and a half ago or so okay uh, and it was uh you know uh, people who've been involved in studying uh conflicts between uh, workers and management uh Taylorism, etc., uh, since the 1970s. Mm. And what struck me about that conference, and this was the closing address, was well, there was a lot of talk of what was going on in the shop floor or on the office floor. Uh, very little of that was related to class. Uh, it really was a labor management conflict kind of thing. Mm. Um, and, and that's why I oriented my talk that way. And then they asked me to write it up. And that's how it got into Catalyst. If this does relate to the nurses insofar as I did give a keynote back in the 90s to the Alberta Union, Nurses Union, right after a very successful illegal strike they had had. Mm. Uh, and very successful, so successful with massive public support, and they weren't allowed to strike. It was an illegal strike that when the, the government finally caved in and gave them what they wanted, uh, but said, look, you're going to have to pay the fine under law for engaging in illegal strike. The nurses said, we won't go back under those conditions. And they didn't even apply the fine. Well, why I'm bringing this up is that uh, that convention uh, had me give a keynote, and I you know, suggested they radicalize their demands to uh, being able to talk with one another on paid time uh, about the labor process in the hospital, and indeed to get more uh, paid time to be able to have democratic meetings with clients about the service in the hospital, etc. And they loved it. They gave me a standing ovation. And then the very next thing on the agenda was that a group of orderlies 
that is the people who clean the bedpans and move patients, etc., uh, who uh, had applied to join the nurses' union. And uh, not a single nurse delegate voted in favor of that. And that reflected a craft union mentality. You know, we are educated, they're not. We are skilled, they're not. Mm. Uh, and I use that as an example in that keynote. Uh, you know, it's very impressive how nurses and teachers have organized and engaged in very creative strike activity. That doesn't mean that they see themselves as working class or they see themselves as having a class belonging with other workers. Uh, uh, that, old, that is what class formation would be about. Mm. And we need to make a distinction between union organizing and the formation of a class-conscious and active and militant working class. Marx and Engels in the manifesto said the first task of every communist is to help organize the working class, the proletariat into a class. Mm. So it's not organize them into a union, it's organize them into a class. Uh, it, it just doesn't happen spontaneously in a capitalist society. And you know what I was trying to get at is that we have seen through the course of the nine, from the, say the nine, 1870s uh, through the first half of the 20th century, not only a process of union organization, but a process of class formation where people, partly through joining unions or being mobilized by working class social democratic or communist parties, people consciously thought of themselves as belonging to the working class, had a class analysis of society, were involved in a class community, etc. Uh, that has increasingly disintegrated in many countries uh, in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, as those very organizations that were engaged, engaged in class formation, unions, social democratic parties, communist parties, uh, no longer were doing that. Uh, we're no longer the center of working class life. Uh, we're no longer providing people with a class map. Um, and, you know, now in the United States, uh, people who were unionized, in some cases still are, uh, have no sense of a class belonging. Uh, you know, you could say they have been de-classed. Mm. Uh, and that becomes part of Trump's base um, by virtue of the deindustrialization, but also by virtue of the fact that the organizations that spoke to them in class terms no longer do so. Uh, so part of our project needs to be to try to, in a very, very different world than the 19th century or indeed the 20th, uh, where occupations and community residences, et cetera, have, have changed so drastically. We need to see as a good part of our role uh, that being of uh, engaging in a process of active class formation. Um, and, and that was the central theme of, of that essay, uh, telling people it's very impressive to see you know, the formerly traditional middle class, uh, uh, especially public employees, uh, unionizing and even in some cases becoming militant. Yeah. Uh, but there's a struggle going on as to whether they will continue to see themselves as middle class or whether they will indeed uh, be uh, leading lights in a newly formed working class. And you do raise the a couple of issues in, in the piece that, uh, you know, uh, sort of, so, so as you just mentioned, you know, this, um, the question of middle class uh, versus working class kind of uh, self-identification. Um, you, you also sort of suggest in that piece that we need to think about whether those class categories mean the same thing now anyway and how we should sort of rejigger them for you know whatever kind of time we are we are living in um uh, and you also uh, it's if i read this correctly it's just one sentence there but um 
you know, you say that our failure to provide uh, sort of organizations that capture this sort of class complexity, if you like, is what's opened the door uh, to the right. Um, and, uh, you know, which which I think you're implying that unions per se are not doing that work, uh, are not providing that that broad organization. Um, not at all. Not at all. Uh, and, and, I mean, we've seen, uh, and that's why the teacher strikes are so exemplary in the United States. We have seen in Chicago and Los Angeles and elsewhere uh, that happening whereby uh, teachers, uh, you know, who you know, traditionally in every 20th century capitalist society, the teachers have been the main agents of socialization mm. uh, uh, into a bourgeois nationalist, you know, liberal democratic anti-socialist uh, worldview for the children they teach. Uh, to see groups of, of teachers explicitly having a strategy of linking up with the working class families and working class communities in which their schools are located and building an alliance with working class parents around education, around the nature of education, around the substance of education, not just teacher salaries and pension. That has been very exciting. And that is, I think, a, an element of class formation. Absolutely. Mm. And you see the teacher's role in the world change uh, when that happens. Um, uh, but, you know, the, how far that is happening is, uh, you know, another question. And, and is little happening in the industrial unions, uh, most problematically. Uh, and that absolutely needs to change. You know, and I, uh, many of your listeners will know Megan Day in the DSA, mm -hmm. uh, and who writes for Jacobin. I met her at a conference in Montreal uh, just over a year ago. And, you know, really she electrified uh, the 300 people there. And me personally, when I talked to her as well afterwards, by saying, look, I'm in the DSA not with any illusions that I'm going to transform the Democratic Party. I'm in there because this allows me to make contacts with people who are engaged in working class struggles. And in the East Bay, she said, they were involved in the DSA there. Uh, the East Bay DSA was involved in trying to elect a black woman for state senator in California. She came close. She didn't win. It was a good campaign. But the main effect of that campaign was it allowed the East Bay DSA to make links with the Oakland uh, teachers and more broad class leadership in Oakland. Mm -hmm. So the DSA was involved in providing lunches. Uh, to students who otherwise would have had to cross the picket line in order to access the school lunch during the strike. Mm. That's an example of effective organizing. And, and you know, what we hope, I hope should happen, is that the people will learn to become organizers through their activities uh, in, in the political arena, through the DSA or otherwise. Uh, and the unions will open up to them uh, and, and encourage them to become organizers, educators inside the unions. Um, that, you know, not only there, it should happen in other community organizations as well. Um, but, you know, that, that's where things need to go. It doesn't mean people stop trying to do politics, trying to get uh, socialists elected uh, at various levels of the state and try to make those people accountable to those who got them elected, uh, which is by no means obviously the case, even with uh, you know the people who have been elected, like AOC so far. Yeah, aggressive to see her identify as someone in that wing uh, of the party, but is she really accountable to anybody in the DSA? Is there any means of accountability of people the DSA effectively get elected for them to be accountable to those who got them there? Yeah, not, uh, you know, this is in fact a perennial 
sort of uh, point of discussion in uh, in you know uh, among uh, people involved in the electoral campaigns is uh, that how exactly do we hold people accountable and um, yeah i as far as uh, you know so i'm not being personally sort of having been involved in any of those campaigns but i i think i think there isn't a clear clear answer to that but it it is very much people are very much aware that that needs to happen <laughs> or that we need a mechanism for that. Um, uh, I had a very good discussion with the uh, DSA National Political Education Committee, a uh, discussion around the book I did with Sam Gimden and Steve Marr called The Socialist Challenge Today. Yeah. It brought out that, and, and people were very aware of that and keen to be talking about that. It was, it was, uh, it was gratifying. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I sort of, um, uh, I listened in on that. Uh, that was that was a really great uh, conversation. Um, uh, you know, it's there's been a, a an, at, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, there, uh, uh, there was a lot of activity, um, not just trying to organize warehouse workers and so on, but also, you know, mutual aid uh, networks and. Um, uh, tenants unions, you know, there were campaigns for rent strikes and so on. Um, and, um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know if there's a way to o- characterize overall either the effectiveness or the durability of many of those things, especially as I think a lot of, a lot of that activity then got overshadowed by the anti-police uh, uprising, um, but in general, do you you know do you have a take on sort of uh, you know alternative organizations like, for example, mutual aid societies or uh, tenants unions? You know, or uh, yeah. Well, it really matters. So you know, if we can only discuss that, it seems to me in relation to particular locations. Yeah. Uh, in some places, workers' action centers that emerged in 2003, 4, 5 have, have you know, passed away as effective youth centers of organization. Other places are still there and important. Mm. Um, and out of the pandemic, uh, it's by no means impossible that uh, new organizations of a community kind you know, will not only emerge in the context of supporting people to not pay their rents and uh, so on, but we'll have a long, you know, longer shelf life. Mm. Um, it's very important that the DSA uh, be very, very closely involved with these at every level, um, depending on the framework in their, in, in their community. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, in the, in the aftermath of, um, the pandemic and the aftermath of the selection, but it really does depend on, I think, the particular community. As I mentioned in the introduction, for Panic, the two broad questions I intended to, to raise as separate, namely that of empire and domestic politics in the U.S., are actually quite connected. And Indeed, if the U.S. remains the world's preeminent military and financial power, then socialists in the U.S. have a special responsibility to analyze and perhaps exploit the struggles for state power. It is not enough to focus on the similarities between the two major political parties, as we usually and correctly do. There are times when the differences between them really matter. An obvious one this time is the current administration's cynical, criminally negligent handling of the pandemic, which may be directly responsible for tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths. And of course, these deaths are concentrated among those already the most vulnerable. Another is the barely concealed appeals to white supremacy rendered especially toxic during the summer of racialized police violence. It is not a coincidence that some of the country's largest police unions have endorsed Trump. None other than Bernie Sanders has been consistently clear, even during the primaries, about the importance of defeating this administration. 
and I'm including a link to his speech during the otherwise uh, quite forgettable uh, Democratic Convention a few weeks ago. The next episodes feature Elisa de la Rosa and David Roddy on the history of people of color in the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, and Sam Gindin on elections and economic planning. Join us in thinking aloud about how our day-to-day work during Corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it. <laughs>